Hi, friends. This is episode 61 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. So great to be back with you. We had an incredible conversation about Daniel chapter 3, and most of us miss what God is trying to tell us about his character there. So I can't wait for you to be part of this conversation as well. But before we get there, I just want to remind you, you can get a copy of the study guide for free, a PDF that you can look at on your screen or print out for you and your friends to have this same conversation. And you can do so at our website, thebiblelab.com. So make sure you make your way over there and get the study guide so you can follow along as well while we go through this conversation. And also just want to let you know, we have a team of individuals. If you would like to start a Bible lab in the community where you live, we would love to help you out, especially now that things are getting better with the pandemic. It would be great for you to start a community right there where you are to have conversations just like these with the people that you love and the church that you're growing there for Christ right where you live. So definitely go to our website as well. Send us a message. Let us know how we can help you, and we will have a team of people that will support you to do that as well. Well, today we're going to take a look at what happened with these three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were threatened with a fiery furnace, and what in the world was going on in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar to cause him to act this way. It's going to be an incredible conversation, and I know you're going to be blessed. So thank you for joining us right here at the Bible Lab. All right, here we go. I think most of the people in this room would like to have a statue of themselves displayed somewhere in town. No, it couldn't possibly be. I am seeing, let me just, uh, for those who are listening to audio, I am only seeing four yes cards out of about 200. Four yes cards. Then almost the rest is no, and then I saw about five maybes. That couldn't possibly be. You wouldn't want a statue in town of you? And have Antifa tear it down? Oh, and, and yeah, Randy says, and have Antifa tear it down. Yeah, nobody wants to have something up that someone's going to tear down. I get it. I understand. Statues have a bad rap today. Well, just wait till you hear about the statue we're talking about today. You think you understand that statue? You're going to see something you've never seen before. Number two, most Christians worship God for what they might get rather than what they now can give. Most Christians worship God for what they might get rather than what they now can give. And I am seeing a lot of yeses. I'm seeing about 70 to 75% yes. I'm seeing about, boy, it's, it's, uh, it looks like 10% no and about 15% maybes. Yeah. This is the challenge, even in our evangelism, when we try to tell people, hey, you should become part of our movement. You should become part of our church. What do we typically go to to entice them to be part of us? Well, don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want eternal life? Don't you want no more pain, no more sickness? Don't you want to have a relationship with God who can work miracles in your life and change things? And did you know, if you become part of the Adventist movement, that you actually increase your financial status by 15%. Did you guys know that? (laughs) Did you know that becoming part of our movement, you become part of the blue zone, which means you live 10 to 15 years longer than your peers in the same town. Did you know that? We always talk to people, and I think these are great things, because I don't want God to stop these blessings because they're real. But we tend to try to convince people to become part of us, not based on what people can now give. Now you have good news that you can share with people who need good news. We typically think the good news is all the stuff that you get, when the good news is all the stuff that he gave that you now can share. So we're gonna take a look at this because this is a big piece of the story in Daniel chapter three that we've missed. 
I've heard the story of Daniel chapter 3, and, and those of you who are uh, trying to quickly go through the story, see, what, what's this one about? This is the story of when Nebuchadnezzar set up a statue or an image, depending on the translation, out in the plains of Dura and required everyone to bow down and worship. Otherwise, uh, you're invited to a barbecue. <laughs> we'll get to that. But when you look at this story in Daniel 3, we've typically looked at it as a story about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and it's not. It's a completely different story than perhaps it was told to you with a little felt board set. This is much, much different. Number three, in religious debates, I tend to get irritated more than informed. In religious debates, I tend to get irritated more than informed. <laughs> yes, yes, this is today's society. I'm seeing a majority of yes. I'm seeing about 80% yes, 10% no, and 10% maybe. Yes, is, is today, I remember as a kid, the previous generation always told me, hey, there's two things you don't, you don't talk about in public, religion and politics, right? Anybody remember that? Was just, that's just the rules of being polite. Two things you don't talk about, religion and politics. Now, you can't turn on a channel without hearing religion and politics, right? And it's not positive. Maybe they should have listened to our grandparents who said don't talk about it. <laughs> Number four, when politicians and celebrities have a true conversion experience, they bring theological clarity to what God wants. <laughs> so I'm seeing a sea of orange, uh, a lot of no's. So, uh, yeah, it's about 80% no, uh, almost 85% no, and then a split between maybe and yes. Uh, we see individuals who have incredible experiences, and I praise God every, every single time they do. But you're going to see today an, a, a portion of the story that, because we have not put the story in context, it's allowed us to say that Nebuchadnezzar is doing something that he's not. And I'm really going to spend some time on this today. But I want you to understand, just like today, when a celebrity or a politician really has a true, real religious experience, God moves in their heart, changes their life, and they, and they acknowledge that God, the true God, is now the God of their heart. They don't always come to the conclusions that they would had they grown up in the church or had some deeper theological training to understand how to now respond publicly to their new internal uh, belief in the true God. And we're going to see what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and what he's trying to do, and actually why he got so angry and would demand that you either bow down to the image or I'm putting you in the furnace. Number five, not receiving a miracle is a sign that your faith is lacking in some way not receiving a miracle is a sign that your faith is lacking in some way. Now, I see a sea of no, which I'm very happy about. I see a couple of yes, and I understand why there's a difference of opinion, because although the majority, the vast majority of you, almost 95% of you said no to this, the reality is when you're going through a faith struggle, which includes especially cancer, illness, someone right on the edge of life and death, what do we immediately do? We ask the prayer warriors to start praying. Now, if you got all the prayer warriors, and especially the individual himself or herself are conscious, we come to a point of real internal conflict. Because some people will say, if you have enough faith, Jesus himself said it, ask for whatever you want, and it will be yours. And so people start saying, oh, okay, well, he also said I can move mountains if I just have a mustard seed of faith, and so my job now is to make sure I have enough faith in order for reality to change, the negatives of reality to change in my life. And so they begin focusing on their level of faith. And the question is, is it now a time of building your faith in God or building faith in your faith? Because many people would become really discouraged when the healing doesn't come and immediately think, 
well, I guess I didn't have enough faith in my faith to believe enough that things would change. Now, some of you are wondering, what in the world does that have anything to do with Daniel chapter 3 with Nebuchadnezzar asking people to bow down to a golden image? Wasn't that story about Nebuchadnezzar saying, no, 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 no. I saw an image of head of gold, arms of silver, many skirt of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, and a big stone crashing it all. And I believe that I can change that. And I'm going to make the whole statue gold. Is that what you heard? Because that's what I heard growing up. And then last week I started looking at the commentaries and looking at the language and trying to figure out what's really going on here that we've missed. What's, what's become lost in translation? And quite frankly, almost everything has been lost in translation. Now I love what our evangelists have done to grow our church in numbers. But because our church has traditionally used prophecy as a recruitment tool, we've shared this chapter of Daniel and the evangelists, I love them. I love them very much, but most of the evangelists through the decades have been individuals who are not theologians, but they're really good salespeople. <laughs> and they're great storytellers. And I love them for what they've done. The problem is you cannot put your theology in the hands of the theolo uh, theologically unprepared. Because what ends up happening is you look at the same story and you'll apply it one way, not knowing that the actual words that Daniel wrote here are actually telling you a completely different story. And so if you're comfortable enough to set aside all of the applications, all the morals of the stories, our kids, to this story, I think you're going to see something about Daniel chapter 3 and about Nebuchadnezzar that makes you understand what God wants you to know today about him and some of the same struggles we have that Nebuchadnezzar was having. And so I want you to, if you will, look at the very first section of Daniel chapter 3. I've got it on the study guide here in the New Living Translation. If you want to read along in a different translation, please feel free. I chose the New Living Translation simply for one thing. When it gets to the measurements, it doesn't do it in cubits because we can't even do the metric system because it's so difficult. It's based on tens. Come on. Our system's so much better based on sixes. Yes. So I did New Living Translation just to keep it simple. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, New Living Translation reads like this. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We'll see some characters that didn't, the next verse. But I want us to stop here because the reason why we misapply what's going on in this story is we don't understand the story, what's really going on. So I want to ask you a question about this image. Why did Nebuchadnezzar want all his conquered subjects to bow and worship a statue? Think beyond what you've heard before and ask yourself, why is he not simply having all of them bow to him on his throne? Because I don't know what you grew up hearing, but what I grew up hearing is that Nebuchadnezzar was so enamored, enamored with this statue that he made the whole statue out of gold, made it look like 
a representation of him and wanted everyone to bow to a representation of him. Is that what you heard when you were growing up? Okay. There's something else going on. Go ahead and raise your comments or question cards. We'll get a microphone to you. I've got one here. And while it's coming to share it, I, wa I, I want us to back up and ask the question about the dimensions. Go ahead and, and bring the mic to Sharon. Thank you. Um, what's, the, what's the dimensions of this statue? How tall? 90 feet. How wide? Nine feet. Okay. So we have a problem with the proportions of a Barbie doll, don't we? Oh, it's just way too stretched out. Well, that's nothing compared to what this would look like. Because uh, someone's, uh, someone's theory just said, I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure I understand either. <laughs> but we're, we're still going to go on. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, hopefully we'll understand by the end, and hopefully Siri will learn something if she's listening. And she works on her grammar. Good Lord. So um, nine feet wide, 90 feet tall, 10 times taller than it is wide. That's actually led a lot of commentators to look at the word for image, or in the New Living Translation, statue. What, uh, what is this word? Because is it the same as what we saw in chapter 2, or is this possibly something different? And all the word nerds who study Aramaic and know all the language here look at that word and they say, you know, this is also the same word that's used for Egyptian obelisks, or these other statues that very much look like what we would uh, relate to like a totem pole. So if it does look like an individual, much like a totem pole, it, the features are very elongated. So either this was more of an obelisk, which if I were to change my opinion away from it being something that would represent a human figure, I would lean toward this, and I'll tell you why. It, in a moment, but my, just for all clarity, my decision has not been made on this. But as I look at what this chapter is saying, it makes sense that he would borrow from some other religions and cultures to try to do what he really is trying to do here, which is not self-worship. So imagine this tall whatever it is, solid gold, and we have to ask the question, ultimately, why did he want his subjects to bow to this gold statue or image? Why didn't he just have his subjects bow to him, maybe on a golden throne? I'm going to start here with Sherry. I have a, <clears throat> a question. It has occurred to me lately that it seems as though Satan realizes that the whole great controversy is about his determination to blacken the character of God. Correct. And one of the things that you can do to most hurt people and uh, make them hate God is to demand that they all believe what you believe. And Satan can find people in every single age who are willing to do that, hmm. right down to this present age. Does that what the background of this might be like? I, I think you're right. Uh, as you look at what's happening here, and we'll see in, in a moment a little bit more context what's happening, I, I think you're on the right track. I also think that you just said something really significant about the devil's strategies to take something good and beautiful and godly and to morph that into something that no longer will need God. And that's when we talk about legalism and issues like that, that's what we talk about, the morphing of going from this beautiful chance to have a relationship with God into here's all the things I have to do to get what I want, which you really don't need God because now it's all about you and what you can do and your ability to keep some rules and, and to in some way earn the gift of God. And so I think you're really on a, on a, big, uh, a big track there. I want you to take a look at the next paragraph I have uh, below the paragraph says the image. The fact that all peoples, nations, and languages were to fall down and worship it suggests that Nebuchadnezzar intended to unite his kingdom under one religion. 
The incident represents the conflict between worship of the true God and the humanistic use of religion to boost the power of the rulers of this world. So think about this. Those of you who were here last week or those of you who uh, want to cheat right now and look at chapter 2, what happened in Daniel chapter 2? What happened in Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Exactly. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and what's the dream about? The kingdoms to come. God, the most high God, and the beautiful thing is Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this at the end of chapter 2, that Daniel, the God you serve, is the king of kings, the God of God. So here is a king who has his Babylonian gods. He's renamed Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that their names are in honor of and in service to his gods. And then he's blown away because this, this guy, Daniel, Belteshazzar, comes and has a god who can do things none of Nebuchadnezzar's other gods have ever done. So he gets really, really excited. This is the god of gods, the most high god. This happens, and he thinks, I've got to reprioritize everything that I'm doing religiously because I found a God who is unlike any other God. And this is the God who not only showed me things I never could have known, but showed Daniel, and Daniel told me, this God's for real. This is not a made-up God. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a superstition. I have proof now of who the strongest God is in the celestial kingdom. Never knew him, never had experience with him, but I do now. And so he orders all of, it's not the, it's, it's not the whole population, is it? I always thought it was the whole population. Everybody's got to come out. But that's not what the story says, does it? No. He brings all of his leadership. It's only his leadership that he brings out to this statue. And the reason why he brings the leadership is because he needs his leadership to understand we are restructuring the religion behind everything that we do in our government. And you've been trained, many of you, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had to go through three years of training. And that three years of training was very much, other than arithmetic and uh, geography and all kinds of other stuff, it was astrology, practices of the occult, theology, the religion of their gods. And so he has to say, oh my word, everyone's gone to college knowing this much about what the gods are all about. And I need them to understand um, there's some continuing education units I need you to take here because there's more just now why does this come on the heels of chapter two's experience of this vision and and god showing himself and nebuchadnezzar acknowledging the true god why is the very next steps that nebuchadnezzar would take is to now build a statue of himself it's not nebuchadnezzar in this moment is saying okay there was a god who showed me about my kingdom and he said i was the head of gold Oh my word, I'm going to make an obelisk or an image or a statue that represents this God, and I'm going to have all of my, of my officials come and acknowledge this is the one true God. And if you're not going to bow to this God, I don't want you in my leadership, I don't even want you alive, I'm going to throw you into this furnace. This is how serious I am. This is the true God. So if you're not willing to worship this God who showed me this, I am showing my allegiance to this God, setting up an image to this God, so that in the end, this God will understand how serious I am, not only take me seriously, but will now continue to show me things I never could have seen because I was worshiping weaker gods. Blue microphone, back here. Jay. Yeah, so it seems like 
what's happening is he's choosing to use coercion and force and uh, very strong tactics to, uh, to try and convince everyone to get on board with the program, so to speak, yeah. with, with his religious program. It, it almost sounds like he's having an evangelistic series. <laughs> from, from time to time, we have to edit certain comments out of our <laughs> podcast. I'm not sure. It's pretty close. <laughs> You're riding the line there. We have to be really careful here because in our jokes, we, we can't offend. And I just want to take a moment and just say our evangelists are amazing. And although, although we, we just joke there, what they do and how they commit their life to helping people connect with the good news, most of us here would not commit our, our lives and our finances to that. And so I just want to say that. But we can joke, and I joke with them as well. And they know because they know the old school. Many of you came up with the old school evangelism, and we just didn't see this stuff. And so I just want to pause and, and just say we love them, and, and there's no, no, no harm here. We, we respect what they did. But Jay, you, you are truly touching on a point when you talk about the coercion, or what do you do when you're in power, and now you have the authority to help people do what you know God wants them to do? We still wrestle with this today. Certain people get into power, and now it's all about creating a policy of what God wants um, and saying, well, we can't do this. We have to stop doing that. We have to start doing this. And if we do it right, God will then bless us. God will then come in the second coming. God will then open up his storehouse to us. We have to be really, really careful because we don't serve a God who, who does this transactional relationship like that. So you can have people in authority who really have the highest intentions, who really feel the impact of God moving on their heart, who still come up with conclusions that were like, oh man, I, I wish they would have had some theology courses, or at least attended the Bible lab three times to have some background um, to, to judge it on. Now I've got three microphones here. I believe the blue mic is next. Is that Deanna? Thank you. You could have just held on to it for a second. <laughs> Um, I think Nebuchadnezzar's problem with this is that he's going from the a religious background of you had to have an image to worship God. Yes, exactly. You couldn't understand a God that you couldn't see. Yes. And so here he has to put this, this image up, whatever it was, so that all of his leaders had to pay homage to this God that he now believed in, but couldn't conceptually accept without seeing something physical. Yeah. That's exactly right. I'm so glad you said that because that brings clarity to us of why would Nebuchadnezzar come to that conclusion of that's what he was supposed to do when if he were to literally say, Daniel, so what do I need to do? Daniel would say, well, we actually have second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Um, we don't do that in our faith. But because, once again, whatever theology impacts someone else's culture, you still have so many assumptions of what God would want. That's why one of my favorite um, professors in, in seminary, his, uh, John Dibdahl, he, his definition of theology was, it's a culturally based understanding of who God is. That's theology, a culturally based understanding of who God is. Because based on the culture that you grew up with, all the societal norms, you're gonna come up with a conclusion of what God wants in a way that another people group in another part of the world will not come to that same conclusion. Who is, who is an, a red microphone, and who is, is that Anesio? Yes, go ahead. Oh. Fake news started the heaven and continues now days and has that time also. Yeah. The biggest problem I see here, not just with this king, king but Cyrus sometimes also. Yes, it's coming is, up. Uh, to understand God's character, God wants us to honor Him freely. Yes. This is the biggest uh, goal of God. Yes. And the King, He tries to make everybody to worship God. Yes. God doesn't want us to worship Him by 
force, yes. but by law, by yes. free. Yeah. This is what needs to understand that they didn't. Absolutely. In this case, they tried. Yeah. But everybody tried to do like this. Yeah. Never goes, never right. What God wants. And by the the evangelist, I'm telling you, I'm fruit of the faith for today in Brazil. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and beautifully stated, your, your statement. The, the, the reality is, yes, he is compelling his leadership to sign up, to, to, to become basically followers of the Jewish God, Yahweh, Adonai. And um, he's doing it by force. Why would he do that? You always have to ask these questions, because these are real people. It's not these characters that don't do logical things. If you look at the story, that's why we're seeing things we've normally not seen. It's because we're asking the question, well, logically, why is he doing this? If you look at what just happened to him with receiving this vision and then Daniel, you know, giving him the meaning and, and all of it, um, in his understanding of what you have to do, when he compared it to the other gods that they served, and you would have to bring sacrifices, you would have to let those gods, the gods of the everyday, know you're extremely serious about following them, and you would have to do things even to get their attention. And so what he's trying to do here is he's applying what you have to do in the other church with this new church, and saying, well, of course, this god needs, just like the other gods, he needs to know we're serious, he needs to see that we will, we will throw people into a fiery furnace if they don't bow down. This is how serious we are. This God's going to look down and say, okay, here's the people I can work with, because they're serious. And so what he's doing by compelling them is trying to show allegiance, not only of him, but every leader underneath him, allegiance to this God of gods. The challenge today is that human nature is always trying to compel people to behave, to conform, to do things just the right way. And the problem is, one of the biggest differences between Christianity and all other major world religions is that in Christianity, your good deeds don't have to outweigh your bad deeds. It's grace. It's a gift not offered by any other representation of God. And in this situation, unfortunately, because Nebuchadnezzar has not spent time understanding this beautiful God, he doesn't understand, he, didn't, he doesn't have to do that because God knows his heart. And he knows that he's serious about following this new God in his life. But he doesn't get it yet because he's immature in his understanding of God. Fortunately, God didn't stop working with him there. He's got another dream for him coming up. All right, right here, Randy. It's funny that your, your depiction of the Olives throws back to your studies before about the Asherah Falls. Yes. And how it speaks down. But I was wondering, um, doesn't Nebuchadnezzar use his in-service for his leadership almost to appropriate the power? Because he still has those if you don't do this, I'm going to actually be the powerful one who will, who will actually make you suffer for not doing this. <laughs> at the end, too, even when he, he says that God is the God of gods, it's still with a stipulation that if you, don't, if you do something, I'm going to be the one taking care of dispensing <laughs> the pain. Yeah, and we still do that today. Yeah. It, it puts more of the power on him. It's like mm. it, it, it does. You know, I'm going to be the one that mm -hmm. is going to have all the power. Yeah, and and something you have to understand, and you'll see more as Nebuchadnezzar's story unfolds. Um, but you have to understand something. Nebuchadnezzar, much like some people that you've met who've come into power, and um, are are very uh, dedicated. To having more power. This is his opportunity to have unlimited power, to have power from the gods, the God of gods. And so he's not only exerting his authority on his subjects, 
but he's also trying to set up to where his power would not only be humanly power, but now he have, has access to divine power. To be, uh, already they viewed the king as, as close to the gods as you can get and still be human. But now with him partnering with the God of gods, his thirst for power is such that what you will see in the coming verses, I'm gonna read here in a, in a moment, um, it's the reason why he gets so angry is because nothing is more scary to a person in power than the possibility of losing that power. Verse 8, but some of the astrologers, the, the, the real word in Aramaic, that's why I put it in brackets here, Chaldeans, those are the Babylonians. It's very important you understand this is who it is. The Babylonian astrologers. These are the occult leaders from Babylon. They're natives to Babylon. So the natives were a little bit upset because these foreigners in chapter 2 have just been given a promotion above them. So you can kind of understand why some of the astrologers, Chaldeans, went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a, decree, issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue. When they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They... Your God, uh, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. Now, I'm just going to stop there, and I'm going to go on in a second, but I just need to let you know. A sign of weakness is for a king to give you a second chance. In front of all of his leadership, he gives them a second chance. Why is he giving them a second chance? Have you ever asked that question? He can't get it. Why are you three the ones who aren't bowing down to the image of the God of gods that Daniel introduced to me? This is your God. And you're not bowing down to the image of your God? I'll give you another chance, because maybe you misunderstood what we're doing here, but we're elevating the status of your God. So I'll give you one more chance. The only reason why he gave him a chance, he's like, these people, that's obviously behavior that tells me they obviously just don't understand what, what, I, what I'm doing here. I'm elevating their God to the highest position of our theology. So, oh, good question. He says, where's Daniel? Okay. I was waiting for someone to ask that because I've always asked that. What the commentators say is this. Look, Daniel's just received this new position in the palace. And the people who are invited out is not everyone. There's specific positions that are invited out. What the king is trying to do, and this just makes my point, so those who are doubting that it's different from the felt board that you saw before, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is saying, look, I need all of you that don't believe in this God, that don't know who this God is, to show your allegiance. Daniel's already shown his allegiance. He doesn't have to. He's the one that introduced him to that God. So why would Daniel have to be there doing it? So because the king put him in charge of the affairs, most commentators say that Daniel had to stay in the palace to actually run the business because not everybody went out there. It's just these key leaders that were called out there to show their loyalty to this God. And so the reason why many people say Daniel wasn't there is because twofold. Number one, he's, already, he's the one that introduced the God, so he didn't have anything to prove. And so Nebuchadnezzar would never doubt his loyalty to this God. And number two, he had, he had work to do because there was still a lot going on in town, in the palace. And so that's what most commentators 
uh, will look at when they say why Daniel's not there. So moving on. Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Now do you understand this phrase a little bit more? Why do they not need to defend themselves? Um, sorry, this is our God. We don't have to defend ourselves. That This is not what our God wants. This is not within the character and nature of our God. Our God doesn't want people to be compelled and forced, otherwise you'll die if you don't worship him. No. But isn't it funny how today many people will have their signs on the corner that said, repent or go to hell? We're still threatening people with a fiery furnace if they don't follow God. It's the same approach that Nebuchadnezzar is using. You want to burn to death? No? Okay. Worship my God. And so they tell Nebuchadnezzar, like, we don't have to defend ourselves because uh, we could actually teach you a thing or two. We grew up going to Sabbath school. We, we, know, <laughs> we know the stories, okay? And our God actually says he doesn't want this. It's our second commandment. He told us that. We have it on tablets of stone, written with his own finger. So we don't have to defend ourselves to you. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve, see how they're delineating between what he's serving. Because you can think you're serving the true God and not be serving God. And they say, but the God that whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So what's the real conflict here? The real conflict is not saying that you're disrespecting the king, which I've always been told. You're disrespecting the king. He said, bow to my image, and you're not bowing to my image. No, he's not saying that. So when you look at the real conflict, why is Nebuchadnezzar so enraged? Why don't you look again at his words? Why might he be confused for the actions, especially these three? I've bold, uh, put in bold print all the places that we seem to have jumped over before. This is a, this is a completely different discussion than helping to uh, pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, red microphone over here. Uh, there's a comment over here, probably unrelated to what I just asked. No, so what, and then it's really more about the method, and I think that was Satan's lie from the very beginning. Yes. Every, he said that, you know, God uses force and punishment, and just like you mentioned earlier, every, all through history, the way on this earth that kingdoms get their power is through whoever's bigger, mm -hmm. whoever's stronger, who, whoever can, you know, um, cause the most um, pain or coercion. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, the that's why a horse death, not by might, nor by power, but the way the spirit works. So, you know, God's way is to show truth and love and freedom. And if yeah. he wants to be our friend, and he's never going to get that um, through coercion. And I think yeah. that's the same issue we see today, and that's the same yeah. issue we're going to see at the very end. Absolutely. As well. So, it's yeah. not, you know, like if any, everybody, you know, legislated that we all become vegan or something. And it's not mm -hmm. the point, it's the method. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's truly the, the challenge we have today. We're forgetting the reason why we have a separation of church and state, um, and we're expecting the, the state to mandate what is moral uh, and, uh, in, in that whole realm, where up to this time, it's the church has been the one to say, well, according to our religious text, this is where we feel comfortable, and this is moral, or this is immoral. Um, and so you're right. We are in a really blurred lines uh, situation today. Um, green microphone right here. Yeah, back to Sharon. I recently learned that there is a group which from the time of the 1940s until now has urged and done everything they can to get the name of Jesus put into the U.S. Constitution. Yes. Is that what we want? Once again, uh, there's a reason for separation of church and, and state, and there's also 
there, there's a shifting now of even freedom of religion or freedom from religion. Um, and so we are living in extremely exciting times because who would have thought that this quickly our whole societal norm would shift in less than two years we are not the same nation we were and in some ways negative and in some ways positive i grew up where they would do these dramatic skits i never really like them too much but they sure were exciting when they'd have the guys come in with the fake guns in the church and they'd come in and they'd have the drama and they'd have someone kneeling recants recants and or we're gonna kill you and this whole thing oh it's so dramatic and one day one day they're gonna come in and they're gonna shut down our churches with guns and they're gonna enforce you realize guys within a matter of weeks uh, there was not a single gun that came into our church we were closed down by something you couldn't even see with your human eyeball and even today, just what shifted in people's mode of gathering for community is different from what it was a year and a half ago. Um, that the shift in people saying, well, I can have just as good of an experience watching something on television, watch a streamed church service or, or Bible study versus being together as family of God in community, caring for each other and seeing how we can care for the world around us. We've shifted completely shifted and so I, I really do see just like what you're saying Sharon there is issues that have come upon us so quickly and many people today are living in fear can I just help you see a different perspective this is not a time to be afraid this is a time to be excited and and I'm going to tell you why because many of us were brought up with the scary theology of someday you're going to have to run to the hills to save yourself. And I'm telling you today, this is the most exciting times because right here in our cities, we don't need to run. We need to, we need to run to the people, not from the people, because the people need to understand in a world that's filled with fear, we have more hope and more excitement than we've ever had at any time during human history. Because today we can see you cannot deny that the world has changed so quickly and that the world is in a desperate need of understanding the character of God now more than ever. Because what people are saying about Christians, it's appalling. Because some of the people who have spoken for you are extremists. And if you look at the other side, the people who are faithless, they've taken it to the extreme too. And so then there's this, there's this group of us in the middle. We're usually pretty quiet because we're open-minded. We want to give people a chance. We don't want to offend. And God has given us this beautiful message that there is a rock not formed of man's hand, carved from this huge mountain that's going to come and it's going to reorient every kingdom. Amen. And Jesus himself is coming soon. And because of that, now is not a time to live in fear. Now's a time to get more excited than you've ever been. Because guess what? We don't have to run anywhere. Because God's running to us. Amen. Now, let's take a look really quickly here. I just want to uh, give us some insight here. The accusers, I, I told you they're... they're in Aramaic as Chaldeans, but I want you to see a, a phrase you would miss because translated into English, it's boring. Um, we use the, the phrase here, it says that the Chaldeans went to the king and informed on the Jews in verse eight. The actual phrase here is, um, it translates this picturesque expression. They went to eat the pieces of flesh torn off from someone's body, which is the old, Aramaic way of saying slander. So I wish we'd use that same phrase today, because isn't that what we do when we're slandering someone? Eating the pieces of flesh torn off from someone's body. We're just ripping them to shreds is what we say. So these accusers are well aware of what just happened in chapter 2. They just got leapfrogged in their ascension to power and leadership. And this is their opportunity to say, look, Let's get rid of them so we can be back in power. 
I love the response of the three Hebrews. They reply, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. God is able, but even if he doesn't. This brings us to a question I want you to ponder either internally or someone out here might want to respond verbally. These are extremely bold statements to the already enraged king. What do these phrases express about God's character? These are things that we have to take a look at. All right, not seeing any cards. I'm going to go through this last segment in the last couple of seconds that we have here. Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 to 30, the ending, the climax of this story. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And by the way, they estimate that that probably got up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit in this furnace that most likely was used as the kiln to create the bricks of the foundation and the internal structure because it was just coated in gold. It wasn't solid gold. And so this was the very kiln used not only to create the structure of the image, but also to um, melt down the gold that was used to cover this as well. So that's why you have a fiery furnace out in the middle of the plain of Dura, is because it was actually used to create this image. So, verse 20, then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's worried. Uh-oh, <laughs> did we throw an extra one in there? Verse 25, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Now in Aramaic, the literal translation I have there in the brackets for you, says he looks like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He gets it now. He gets it, right? Because he thought that this God would be pleased by his actions. But he realizes that that God is saying, no, 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 no. They have the correct information. So he says, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors, because they're all there, crowded around them and saw that the fire had not uh, touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. This is him saying, look, they were trying to tell me this. We don't have to defend ourselves. This, our god doesn't want this. Verse 29, therefore, I make this decree. And remember, all the Chaldeans are there who are thinking these guys are going to be uh, demoted permanently. His decree is, if any people, whatever the race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. I think they only had one punishment back then because he keeps saying this chapter after chapter. <laughs> there is no other God who can rescue like this. This echoes back to chapter 2. What other God can share these dreams and visions like this. He's getting it. He's understanding what God is trying to do in the world around him with these people of faith who are connected to the true God. But he's bumbling. He's making all these mistakes. And he finally says, look, there's no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was not a cheer in the crowd for that. Um, 
He promoted them to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So our question is, what does God want us to discover about his character in the story's conclusion? And what I want you to ponder, because we're out of time, what I want you to ponder this week in your prayer walk with God, we do have three little prompts there for your prayer walk this week, but I, I really want you to take a look, especially at the ending of the story. There are times when it feels like you're faced life and death, or pain or pleasure. You're between these two places and you're like, God, why would you put me in this position? Why would you allow me to get in this place where, I mean, I thought if you follow God, didn't the televangelist tell me that my life would get better? If I send in a hundred bucks, I'd get a thousand bucks. What's going on, God? Because I'm doing everything you want me to do. And even though in good conscience, I could bow to this idol because it represents the one true God. I can split hairs here and I can say, God would understand. But even in those situations, God says, look, you understand my character. You know what I want. Don't worry about the fire that's next to you. Because if you just will acknowledge, I think I know what God wants, and I'm going to stand for God because I'm the only representative in this place, in my workplace, in my business, perhaps in your family. You're the only representation of what God really wants. And God allows you to be next to the fiery furnace and to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Why? Because God needs the people around you to understand the character of God, and they'll only understand it if they have to discount and rewrite everything that they think that they know about the character of God. So that's why the pain is not persecution. That's why the fire is not your trial. The fire is your opportunity to say, I know God wants you to understand his character. And I know he's not going to let me get burnt. But if he does, I'm cool with that. Because I know he loves me. And I know that even if I die here of this, this is not all there is. Because the God I serve says, I want to dwell with you for all eternity. And in this moment, whatever trial you're going through, and I imagine a group this size, there's several trials going on right now. Stop looking at the punishment that is looming. Stop looking at the persecution that's going to happen and look at the opportunity God is giving you right now to say, my God's got this. And he will see me through it. Not just from a distant vantage point. He will come and walk with me through the fire. But even if he doesn't, I can't allow your view of God to mess up the beautiful view that God's given me of who he really is and what love really means and what it means to have a relationship with a God who doesn't demand that you worship him, otherwise you will die. God is giving each of us an opportunity. Don't run to the hills. Otherwise, you'll never get to walk through the fire with him. Wow, isn't it amazing how when you go back and take a look at the, at the language, the historical context, what the Bible really says about God, it's amazing how much we've missed in the past. And so I'm so thankful that you joined us today for this conversation. And I cannot wait for episode 62, the next session where we go into chapter four of Daniel, because God does something with Nebuchadnezzar to help him grow and to help him understand how do you have a vibrant relationship with God. And I know you'll be blessed, and I'm sure God has a message for you too through Daniel chapter 4. So don't miss it. Come back for our next episode. God bless you.
And until then, continue letting God walk with you through the fire. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.